Well, thank you again, everyone, for joining us. It's exciting to have you as my catechism and seminary class students um, as we continue what has become a tremendous journey in learning our Catholic faith. And I really started digging into my seminary notes and um, it's kind of interesting because I've done talks on Mary, so you've had some Mariology like I got in seminary. I did talks last week on Jesus or the week before on who Jesus is. Um, so you've got some Christology. Uh, today we'll be talking about God the Father and the Old Testament. So you'll be getting seminary classes today uh, regarding uh, God one and triune or triune God, uh, as well as the Pentateuch and the Old Testament scriptures. So it's an honor to have all of our Marian helpers with us for this continuing um, teaching and, um, and learning of our faith. It's an honor for me, and, and we're here on a snowy New England day, so um, let us ask our Lord for his grace. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And you can bet we are going to talk more about that prayer, the Our Father, at the end of this talk, and we'll, we'll go through the significance that we say it often, but we don't always think about it. And so um, what an awesome topic today. The, the Old Testament is so misunderstood. Um, I, I, you know, we're going to talk about that, as you saw on the title slide, God the Father and the Old Testament. Um, also, too, Brother Mark will show this is part of my ongoing series. The first 13 talks, as I mentioned, each week have been released uh, called Explaining the Faith Series. You can get that at 800-462-7426 or going to shopmercy.org or streaming it at the divinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. Okay, who is this God that seems so different in the Old Testament than he is from the New Testament and it confuses a lot of people? I'm going to get into all of this, but I think one of the best I've ever heard, and I don't even know from who I heard it, but the reason that God seems so different, but he isn't, we are the ones who are different. I heard the example of think of a rose. Now a rose, if it is in rich soil, well watered, a lot of moisture, the rays of the sun are going to give it life and warmth and, 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 and help it to grow and be um, uh, a healthy rose. But that very same rose without water in arid, sandy soil, those same rays from that sun are going to scorch it. They're going to burn it. And then we're going we're gonna to see a whole different reaction from that rose. It's the same sun. But what's the difference in the rose is whether or not it has that water or not. And that water is grace. 
And so this is why we have to be ready to have God's grace running through our veins, just like that water. So we're going to go into all this. How do you explain it? Okay. The first thing I want to say about this talk is our next slide. Who is God? God is Father. Okay. Now, why do we call God Father? Because Jesus said to. He, he refers to God as Father throughout the scriptures, and we participate in his relationship with the Father. So he says, you too call him Father. <clears throat> this is important. We're going to explain this. Now, why not mother? Spirits are genderless. There's no male spirit, no female spirit. Well, then why do we call God Father? Well, as Jesus told us to was one reason, as I just said, but the word father means coming from the outside, all right? The mother welcomes the father. The mother welcomes in the father, into herself. And so God as father, like earthly father, comes from the outside. And this God of ours even plays a role at conception, he comes from the outside, just like the father in the earthly terms, comes in to the mother. The father here, as in God, comes from the outside to all of creation and breathes in a spirit. Now, part of that spirit, or excuse me, part of what receives that spirit is the church. And that's why we call her mother. She receives what God the Father brings from the outside. He brings the spirit, just like the male father brings in, in the semen and the sperm, the life. God as Father brings the spirit as life into the mother who is church. That's why we say church is she and God the Father is he, even though there's no gender technically. It's the meaning. And so the church's mother is part of that creation that receives God into herself and allows him to bring forth new life, just like the mother allows the father to come into her and bring new life. This is incredible. And so this is what we're going to talk about today. All right, now... Within the Trinity, okay, let's take a look at our next slide. This is a powerful painting of the Trinity. Within the Trinity, we know the first person is Father. Okay, he's on the right, obviously. Why do we say Father? Because he is the origin of the Son and the Holy Spirit. They come from him. Now, this is important. If you haven't heard my other talks, Please visit my other talks I did on the Trinity, I did on the Holy Spirit, I did a talk on the second person of the Trinity, now we're rounding it out with the Father. But remember, as we look at this on the screen, remember here, the Holy Spirit and the Son come from the Father, but they are not created. None of the three were created. See the Holy Spirit up there as the dove, the Father on the right and the Son on the left. Now. None were created, but the Son is begotten of the Father, which means that he comes from him, not created. He's always been this way. And the Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. Remember my other talk. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. When the Father and the Son love each other, 
proceeds from that is the Holy Spirit. Now, he is also father of the son in the sense of history through the incarnation, which is very important. So he is father in many different ways. And he's father for us too, because if we're united with the son, when he came to earth, he united his divine nature with our human nature. We too are adopted sons. So we are sons in the son, S-O-N. All right, now, why do people though today have such a hard time believing in God as father? All right, now, part of this is the culture of death. Let's look at our next slide. These three, we pray for them. God bless them, have mercy on them. But they are actually what we refer to as masters of suspicion. Do you know who these people are? That's Karl Marx on the left. That is Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche in the middle, and Sigmund Freud on the right. These three did a lot of damage. Freud saw himself as an anti-Moses, whose destiny, he said, was to abolish the fatherhood of God because he was responsible for the oppression of the human psyche. That was Freud. Karl Marx was the enemy of anything divine. He said, I hate all gods. And he said, I hate all gods who mesmerized, then oppressed the people. And he viewed subservience to a father figure as a death blow to one's own selfhood. This is the problem with Marxism and communism. Now Nietzsche is also a problem. At 13, he believed he solved the problem of evil. He said, love yourself through grace, then you are no longer in need of your God and you can act the whole drama of the fall and redemption to its end in yourself. All self-sufficiency. That's the root of sin. So this is what's going on here. These masters of suspicion turned the human heart against God as father. And it's been reflected throughout society for well over now a hundred years. This is scary. But the church is your antidote to this. Let's look at our next slide. In crossing the threshold of hope, John Paul II addressed this. He said, original sin, it all goes back, just don't blame those guys, even though they made big mess of things. He goes back and says, it's original sin. He said, original sin is an attempt to abolish fatherhood. This is what we're going to talk about today, fatherhood. If man doesn't view God as a loving father... He will view him as a tyrant and an oppressor, and therefore he will rebel against him as just a slave would against his master. This is what these false 
teachings are going on in our schools today, in our society, that we, we have to throw out the patriarchy. We, it's all about, about uh, white privilege. It's, it's, you're oppressed. You must rebel. You're a slave. You must rebel. No, the patriarchy and the destruction of the nuclear family is not the answer. Getting rid of your father is not the answer. Fatherhood is not slavery. It's loving direction. And again, we'll go more into that. All right, now, John Paul said the, the abolition of the fatherhood of God is at the same time the abolition of the fatherhood in man. He connected them. He said, in this state of lawlessness, man presumes that he has freedom. This is what these movements are trying to tell us as they're burning our cities down, that we want freedom. It's the opposite, if you believe John Paul II. All right? John Paul II says, if this is a fatherless universe, which is what those riots are trying to destroy as the patriarchy and the nuclear family, don't, don't accuse me of trying to be political. I'm just telling you what they have stated on their own manifesto on the websites. John Paul said, a fatherless universe where accountability is in oneself only and it's only about yourself has become the opium of the masses, meaning we're addicted. This atheism, the atheism, atheism, I'm sorry, of these masters of suspicion, Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx, is essentially fatherless. They've destroyed the father. And fatherlessness inevitably leads to anarchy, both personally as well as socially. And that is exactly what we are seeing today. People don't get what is at the root of this problem. It's the denial of fatherhood, which comes from the very creator himself. Father, you're, you're going crazy here about this. this. You're making connections that don't exist. No, this is church teaching. This is John Paul II. This is Benedict. And I'm going to lay this all out. Stay with me. Now, despite massive social problems that all this has created by not having fathers, this fatherlessness, and all the studies show this, you look at any reports out of imprisonment and people who commit crimes, a huge statistic is they grew up without fathers. Now, despite that, we continue to deculture paternity. It's a bad thing. In one generation, not even a generation, in less than one decade, I went from watching TV back in the days when I watched TV. I don't watch any TV anymore except the Mark, brother Mark and I watch an occasional football game. But I went from watching Family Ties, Full House, and Growing Pains in the 80s, and even Leave it to Beaver before that, where the father was ultimately respected and loved and cherished and listened to, to within just a few years into the early 90s, it changed. Then I started watching four new programs. They became my favorite at the time. Let's look at our next slide. Married with Children. Let's keep that slide up. The Simpsons, 
Home Improvement, and Everybody Loves Raymond. Those were my four favorite TV shows. Look at that slide. Do you know what all four of those TV shows focused on? The buffoon of the father. The husband was a buffoon. What is that? Stay in school or this could be you laughing and mocking the father. Now, I understand some of that is in good fun, but it was the theme running throughout all four of my favorite shows that I didn't even realize. It was an indoctrination that I didn't even know about. In Married with Children, Simpsons, Home Improvement, Everybody Loves Raymond, the father was completely incapable. There was to be no respect for him. He was part of the indoctrination of leading away from this patriarchy. This liberal society now is not content with just vilifying fatherhood. It must abolish it. And as I said earlier, that is actually on the manifesto, written on the very website of the founding of Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. We know this. This is critically important. But when the teaching involves destruction of the nuclear family and removal of the patriarchy of the father, we can't support that. That is a very detrimental thing to society. And so we have to understand this. This has been running through our society. Back in 1999, an American psychologist, there was an article called Deconstructing the Essential Father by Louis Silverstein and Karl Auerbach. In it, they said fathers are dangerous to the well-being of children. Are you kidding? They said, quote, we see the argument that fathers are essential as an attempt to reinstate male dominance by restoring the dominance of the traditional nuclear family with its contrasting male and female gender roles and must be stopped. This is insane. This is what's going through our society. But don't give up hope. In order to recover fatherhood, there must first be a recovery of God the Father, the fatherhood of God, our topic today. The reason I gave all that other stuff is to show you that the fatherhood of God affects every part of our lives. Augustine and Aquinas spoke that, and they gave some insight here. They spoke of that inordinate love of self that leads to a hatred of God. They pointed out the seven deadly sins, which I'll be talking about coming up in another talk, can be fatal to fatherhood. Why? Because we're not dependent on anyone but ourselves. We don't need the guidance of a father. We know best ourselves. Wasn't there a show in the 50s called Father Knows Best? Yeah. We've lost that. Let us not, Marian helpers and family, stop praying for a return to that. The fatherhood of God conjoins authority with love, the opposite of those masters of suspicion, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. The Pope even said, it is about ethos and eros. What does that mean? Ethos is law, <clears throat> eros is love. They are not only compatible, but they are essential to the person. Now, fatherhood 
is you can't have one without the other. In other words, the fatherhood is neither loveless law, nor is it lawless love. Did you hear that? It's not loveless law, nor either is it not lawless love. If you have either of those, it isn't going to work. And that's what people think God is, loveless law. And then people think the New Testament is lawless love. This is the whole misconception of our Bible. Everybody thinks the Old Testament is lawless, excuse me, loveless law. It's only law, no love. And the New Testament is lawless love. It's only love, it's no law. Uh-uh. We must have both. It is an affection, that's the love, and direction, that's the law for the person. Without fatherhood, we neither know who we are nor where we're going. We need identity, who we are, and we need destiny, where we're going. Who we are is created in a loving image of God. Where we're going is to heaven. And we need a father to show us that way. The father provides that identity and that destiny. One of the talks on Father Don Calloway is about a father giving that identity to his son. Son, you're my son. That's why a father is so important to be there. You know, all the studies show that, um, that one of the biggest factors in homosexuality is a, is a domineering mother and an absent father. But when the father comes in and says, you are my son, and, 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 and as the father said, this day I have begotten you, or I have begotten you, not this day, but I have begotten you. This is beautiful. All right. Let's keep going. What does calling God Father teach us about him? Mm, all right, Benedict. Pope Benedict said, for those with no father, it's not easy to think of God as father. It's hard to trust him because we've been hurt. We've been wounded if we don't have a father or maybe our father was abusive. This is very difficult, Pope Benedict said. He said, therefore, we turn to the gospel because the gospel reveals the face of God as a father who loves us so much he's even willing to send his son. Now, we can go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus said, if you then, who are wicked, he's talking to us, know how to give good gifts to your children, He's talking to fathers here. How much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Man, he really made us his children in Jesus, our brother. So together we are sons in the son and God the father is Abba, father. He didn't call him ruler or master. Jesus called him Abba, father. He is a father who cares for the birds of the sky, Jesus said. And we're way more valuable than those. So God is this father, this Abba, who welcomes and embraces us, even if we've been wayward and we've been lost and we still come back. Luke 15 is the perfect example. You know, let's go to our next slide. What is this? This is the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a parable that has been called the greatest short story in the world. This is the prodigal son. Now, what does prodigal mean? Prodigal means to spend lavishly. So it actually 
could be called the parable of the prodigal father because the father spends lavishly on his son his mercy. He showers his mercy on his son. So when I first read this, when I was in grade school, I used to side with the older brother, right? Uh, you know, and that was until I saw it from a sinner's viewpoint much later. Now, why? Because this brother is like the self-righteous Pharisees who wanted the sinner destroyed, not saved. Kill him. Get rid of him. He messed up. His attitude basically shows that his years of obedience to the father had only been out of duty, not out of love. You could see this. So like the Pharisees, he followed the law, but didn't love his father, just like the Pharisees followed the law, but didn't love God. So this brother lacks the sympathy that we see here clearly, right? And, and would never have given the brother a second chance. But the father, who was the one who was really wronged, was the one who was forgiving. The son, who had not been wronged, was the one who was unforgiving. In fact, he was accusatory. He was basically saying, you know, this other son of yours spent all the money. No, he didn't. He only spent his portion. So this older brother is actually falsely accusing him. And then he says he wasted it on harlots and prostitutes. Actually, there's no mention of harlots until the older son brought it up. So we don't know that that's how the younger son wasted it. Could it be that this older son is suspecting that he did sins? His younger brother did sins that he would have did himself. So the basic point is, when you first read this, as I did in grade school, that you can't love someone who's turned their back on you. If they've turned their back on you, they no longer deserve your love. Well, that's not God's way. The son receives more mercy than he should. Everybody agrees to this. But why? If you look at it from God's perspective, he doesn't get more than he should. Because Jesus told St. Faustina, the greater the sinner, the greater the right he has to my mercy. He was fully instated into the family, this younger son, just like confession. Yeah, on earthly terms, he doesn't deserve it. He wasted many graces that were given to him. But neither do we deserve mercy every time we go into the confessional, wasting the graces God gives us. God gives us the graces to be patient and, and, and humble and chaste and temperate, and we blow it. We sound like broken records in the, in the confessional sometimes, myself included. All right? Now, we don't deserve mercy either, but we, we go there, we go into that confessional, and his mercy has no strings attached. Just like the father of the prodigal son, the slate was wiped clean. Just like ours is on Divine Mercy Sunday. No matter what we've done, God's love will forgive us if we simply turn back. That's the love of a father. The love of a father is not conditional. Well, I'm going to love you, son, as long as you're a success. Now, that doesn't mean that the father shouldn't hold the son to a standard. You know, look, at, if you're going to live with me, you either need to pay me rent or, or go to school. I just, that's not right of a father just to let a 30-year-old son live, watch TV all day, do drugs, 
and look at pornography all day long and not have a job or go to school or something like that. That's false mercy. Now, the amazing truth is that God the Father is more merciful in his judgments than most men are. Most of us would have sided with that other brother, right? So God the Father forgives when normal men wouldn't. And he sometimes lets us fall away like this other young son so that we could see our errors. And he lets us realize our need for his mercy to see how we really are. And that compels us to go back to him. Do you see the incredible message here? It's amazing. Now, the son leaving is like us when we cut ourselves off from God's grace, when we commit grave sin and go our own way. But then we become hungry. We need the real food. We need God's grace. Just like that son needed the food of the father. My, my servants of my father eat better than the pigs or better than I do. I'm eating like a pig. And he, he comes back because he realizes that being away from the father, he needs real food. So the son came back realizing that the father's love for him was what he needed and he declared his guilt. This is exactly what God is asking us to do in the confessional. In our confessional <clears throat> is us physically coming back to the prodigal father who's gonna lavish mercy upon us. The father's reaction in the parable is joy. And this is powerful, not condemnation. This is why I've been on missions where I've had people come to me and they were afraid and they said, Father, I don't even know where to start. I'm so embarrassed. You're gonna, you're gonna really get on me. I've been away for a confession for 50 years. And instead of me saying, what's wrong with you? My reaction is, praise God. Heaven is rejoicing. You're the prodigal son returned today. Wow, amazing. So this, we are all like that prodigal son. So how could we be treated as good as he did, as he was by the father? Come back home. Come back to mass. Come back to prayer. Come back to the sacraments. Go to confession. Declare your guilt, just like the prodigal son says, Father, I have sinned against you and against God. Next, be cleansed. Not only in the confession, but Divine Mercy Sunday, cleanse everything on our soul. And if you haven't heard my Divine Mercy talks, they're un, already on YouTube as part of this Explaining the Faith series. Amazing. All right, let's keep going here. Now, the relationship of the father to the son. This is something very important. When we see Jesus is when we see the father, because the two are one. This is John 14, verse nine. And in fact, let's look at our next slide. Father Mike Gately wrote <clears throat> 33 days to greater glory. And he points out that for the son, it's all about the father. He is always thinking about the father. And you can read about this in 33 days to greater glory. The relationship between the father and the son is all about begetting, meaning that the son comes from the father, but he's equal to, he wasn't created. He's always existed. He's begotten by the father, but he's equal to the father. So the father begets the son, Father Mike Gately says, without holding anything back. He pours it all out. The son is given everything the father has. That's humility. Like, you know what? I was the greatest running back in the history of the NFL, but I'm not gonna teach my son my one greatest move. 
because you know what? I, you know, hey, come on, that's, that's mine. Let my son develop his own. Let him find his way. I'll teach him all the other stuff, but that one signature move I got, yeah, I got to keep that to myself. The father didn't do that. The father poured it all out, and the son knows everything he has is a gift from the father. I do what I see the father do. This is important because the son sees the father and then gives himself in imitation of the father on the cross. He gives everything he has without pouring, uh, holding back. And so the son gives everything on the cross just like the father did for him, for us. He doesn't hold anything back. Jesus knows the father and wants his goodness to be known by all of us. And this is what Jesus is doing on the, on the cross. He's not holding back. He's sharing that. They reveal each other. Wow. Powerful stuff. All right, let's keep going. Now, here's the one thing, though, speaking of the cross. How could a good father allow his son to go to the cross? Like, wouldn't you think, gee, you know, what kind of dad was that? That not only allowed his son to go to the cross for crying out loud, he sent him to the cross. All right. Another hang up for people with Christianity that we're going to explain. Many say that God cannot be omnipotent. What does that mean? All powerful. Because then there wouldn't be so much suffering and evil. Because if he was all powerful, he'd get rid of that. And he must not be omnipotent or all powerful because there is this suffering and evil. Now, <clears throat> I just finished a book where I explain all of this in detail. It's called Understanding Divine Mercy, and it'll be out in March and a part of a five-part series on EWTN right before Divine Mercy Sunday. So I'll defer to that for more explanation. However, I will say this. We don't understand this because we prefer divine omnipotence according to our own beliefs. Now, what do I mean by that? We want a God who only solves problems, who intervenes only to save us from all difficulty, who defeats all adversaries. That's what the Jews thought the Messiah was. They didn't expect Jesus. They expected some guy to come in and overthrow Rome. We expect an omnipotent divine being who changes the course of events to help us and to remove all our pain. That's how we define divine providence. But it's not how God defines divine providence. In the face of suffering, for us, it becomes difficult to see God as Father. And so many turn away from him and turn to idols. God, however, in creating free creatures, gave us, waved a portion of his power and gave it to us leaving us the power. Thus, he loves and respects our free will. This is one of the greatest gifts he gave. But remember, with it, he took a risk. I said this in my other talk, that we would hurt each other and turn our back on him. And when we do that, we create a mess. The mess that's created isn't because of God, it's because of us. And his omnipotence isn't necessarily gonna always fix the mess. His omnipotence is going to be expressed in mercy and forgiveness. In other words, forgiving us for the mess we got not into, not necessarily fixing the mess, because he maintains our freedom. 
And he gives us that freedom. Now, God seems some, to some people weak. Some of those masters of suspicion thought God was weak because they saw Jesus that allowed himself to be beaten and scourged. When I was a little kid, I remember seeing Jesus in Nazareth. You remember Robert Powell? He came there. You know, it's a very interesting story. I don't know if this is true. I can only say I heard this, but Robert Powell was a, a very good Jesus, I thought, in Jesus of Nazareth. And the old story said that there was an old Italian film crew that was filming Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know, some union crew or something. And they were used to, you know, drinking on the set. They had liquor on the set. They had pornography on the set. And when when Jesus came out, Robert Powell dressed as Jesus. He was so convincing that they threw out all their pornography, all their alcohol, all their drugs, all their cigarettes. It, it was really like this amazing transformation, right? Now, <clears throat> the thing was, is you could see when Jesus in that show or that series was beaten and scourged when I was a little kid, I'm like, get up and fight. Get up, strike back, you can wipe them all out. You know, I was this 10-year-old kid, you know, wanting Jesus to strike back. But that's not how he works. And that's why some people think he's weak. But that's where he's strong. That's where he has power. He gave us life. That takes power. By paying our debt for sin, which is death. And then he defeated that death by resurrecting. That's the ultimate power. He deprived death of its poison. And so true fatherhood is responding to evil not with evil, but with good. Like Ward Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> he never responded to evil with evil. He responded with good, unlike these TV fathers we see today, who aren't even there. And so the father does respond to evil, not with evil, but with good. Now, Dr. Scott Hahn, a good friend of our Marian community, he adds, he says, God's name from all eternity is Father, not Creator. He is a Creator. It's what He does. It's not who He is. That's why we say God's the Father, the Son is the Redeemer, the Holy Spirit is the Sanctifier. That's what they do. So God eternally is Father, but not Creator. He's not even Lawgiver. He's not even Physician. Those are what He does. So he is only creator after he created something. So creator is not part of his being from all eternity. He did it. All right? He is only lawgiver after he's given the law. And again, he only gave the law to man. So he is not an eternal lawgiver. And he's only a physician after he's healed someone and like us creatures in need of healing. So he wasn't always a healer either. But what he always was, was father. Yet, this is what we don't understand. He is father forever because he has always lived in communion with the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and since God is spirit, okay, stay with me. I'm giving you some good God in one and triune seminary training right now. Hopefully I'm making it easy enough to understand. But God is spirit, <clears throat> so when he thinks of himself, we told you this in my other talks, we have the word, that's the son, and when he loves, the love between the father and the son, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> because he created through the word, 
and we were created. So we were created as sons in the Son, S-O-N, in baptism, and became partakers in this divine nature. I won't go into that now. I've already covered all that. But as it was said, God became man so that man could become God, not a member of the Trinity, but sharing in the divine nature of God. We are able to participate in the love that Jesus shares with the Father. This is why we have to understand God as Father. And you cannot love what you do not know. So you being here with us today is a great sign that God's grace, as I always say, is in your soul right now working so that you can know him better, so you can love him better. All right, God is our Father because we now share in Jesus' sonship. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray our father, not my father, all right? And John Paul II, in his encyclical, Dives in Misericordia, which is God, is, um, is, is mercy, all right? Rich in mercy. John Paul said, God who is rich in mercy, whom Jesus Christ has revealed to us as father. Wow. So this is why, let's go to our next slide, Pope Francis in Misericordia Voltus, meaning the face of mercy, said, Jesus Christ is the face of the Father's mercy. This is what we have in the image of divine mercy. If you capture the mercy of the Father and you somehow encapsulate it, you're looking at it on your screen. What you are gazing upon as revealed to St. Faustina is if somehow you could capture the mercy of God the Father, you got it on your screen. Mercy has become living and acting in the visible person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is amazing. All right, and this lid sets up, really, for our next slide. Let's go right into that. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. These words sum up the entire mystery of the Christian faith. The Father is merciful. You want to summarize everything in the Bible? I said before, is trust why do we trust when we can understand that the Father is not law or discipline only? Yes, he's, he's justice, but he's mercy. Doesn't mean he's only mercy. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, the Father revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, wait a minute, Father. I thought the Old Testament God was mean. No, we're going to talk about that. So God of mercy is not just found in the New Testament. It rings throughout the Old Testament, believe it or not. The God of mercy is only in the New Testament, Father, the nice and, 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 and appealing look of Jesus. No, not only because it was the God of the Old Testament and his mercy that sent the Son in the first place. And so let's look at this. Let's go into now the God of the Old Testament. Let's look at our next slide. Because here is important. We need to know the God of the Old Testament. Now, the Catechism gives a summary of this. You probably haven't had a chance to read it. I'll just briefly give you the highlights. All right. By natural reason, we can know that God exists. There's actually something by Thomas Aquinas called the five proofs of God. I think it's fascinating. And I'd like to do a whole talk on that sometime. But he says, even without a stitch of faith... There's five ways that you can know God exists. I don't have time to explain them. I'll just pick two of them. One is 
because everything has a cause. Okay, now I exist, I'm here before you. What caused me? My parents. Well, what caused my parents? Their parents. Well, what caused their parents? Their parents. Well, what caused their parents? Their parents. The point Aquinas makes is you can't continue that on for infinity. Somewhere it had to have a starting point. Somewhere it had to have a beginning. And that beginning, the first cause is God. Now, he also points to that you can go out and look at the order of the universe. Do you know if our, if our earth tilted even a degree off its axis, we'd all die? Um, the, the amount of the food chain and the temperatures and, and, and how everything in the order of the universe is another existence proof of the existence of God. All these things are true. By natural reason, we can know God exists on the basis of what he does. But there's another way, another order of knowledge that we cannot arrive on our own. And it's called divine revelation. There are things only God can show us, like he's a trinity. We don't naturally see that in the universe. So we have to be given this. And God has fully revealed his self and his plan through our covenants and sending us his son and the Holy Spirit. His will is that men should have access to him, to know him, to love him and serve him through Christ, his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can now share in this divine life of God. It all comes from the Father. And to know him, we can love him. That's why you're with us. Now, in the beginning, God makes himself known by first coming to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this revelation is incredible because God shows who he is. But he's so loving that he didn't even break off that relationship, even though our first parents messed up. He could have left us. He could have abandoned us. He even could have destroyed us, but he didn't. This is mercy. So mercy is in the Old Testament throughout. So after the fall, God gave them hope. Hope of salvation by promising them a savior, Jesus, and the gift of a mother. And he offered covenants through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. I, I did this talk. I'm not going to get into these. But if you want an understanding of the covenants, I have a talk on the Bible as part of this Explaining the Faith series called Understanding the Bible. It's on our YouTube channel. But I will say this. Let's go to our next slide. Here's just a little summary. So God made these covenants. And he made a promise through Adam and Eve that they'd have a savior and a mother. He cleansed the world of sin via Noah. All right. He formed a new tribe called Israel through Abraham and then freed them from slavery in Egypt through Moses. This was physical slavery. Now the people through Moses were introduced to the priesthood. The priesthood came and started, the first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother. And so this priesthood now becomes possible, and Aaron is the first high priest, paves the way for Jesus, priest, prophet, and king. We've talked about that in this series. Now Moses gave them the law so that they could know what is expected of them and to recognize and follow God. Remember, you cannot love what you do not know. So in order to love God, we first had to know him and Moses showed us how to know him through who he was and the law. So it all serves a purpose. 
So people looked, though, once Moses did this, okay, this Messiah is coming, and, and he's been promised, and he's going to liberate us from oppression. He's going to kick out the Romans. And God didn't say that. Instead, God gave a greater reason to liberate, the freedom from sin. And so this is also the mercy of God seen in the Bible. All right, next slide. It's not just men, though. Look closely at this slide. This is the women of the Old Testament. The women of the Old Testament were amazing. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Judith, Esther. They kept alive the hope of Israel's salvation. The women played an important role. Who was the most important that led to was Mary. And then from Mary comes Jesus, to Jesus through Mary. And God has said everything in his word when he spoke, and now he's delivered. He's delivered the ultimate promise, the Savior, the Son. And so that's why Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, quote, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers, meaning our ancestors, by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. So there will be no more revelation. Do you know that public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle? There'll be no more public revelation. It's all been given. Well, Father, what about Fatima and all that? That's private revelation, which is good. It helps explain public revelation. It applies it to the needs of our times, like World War II or you know, Russia spreading their errors. But we do not add to public revelation. This is why there's concerns over certain, and the church looks very closely at certain mystics, like one famous mystic that everybody's following, God bless her, but she said that Jesus is going to put me at, the, at his right hand. Or no, Mary at his right hand, I'll be on his left. And she said, he's told me things that he's told no other saint in the history of the world. Wait a minute, you're talking about Peter and Paul? And you're going to say that he's told you things? You've got to be careful on this stuff. Okay, so anyway... Now we're going to get into something interesting, how God reveals himself. All right, let's go to our next slide. You see this word? I, my understanding is that we cannot say that word in the liturgy or in music out of reverence. But my understanding, as far as I can tell, as I'm allowed to say it, if for purposes of reverent teaching. So God reveals himself as Yahweh. Now, the fact that I say that is in no means meant to disrespect, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. The Bible uses many terms and descriptions for God, but this is the most prominent and most personal. Now, where does this name come from? Let's go to our next slide. It comes from the name is thought to be based on the Hebrew word to be, which is represented by those four consonants, Y-H-W-H. All right. It means I am to be or I am. I am the one who exists. He who causes to be, I am and will be present. This is why when God replied to Moses, when he asked him, who are you? Who should I tell them sent me? He said, tell the Israelites, 
I am has sent you. So God is being itself, the being whose very nature is to exist and always has existed. Now I'm giving you some deep God one and triune class. Now, he does not need anyone or anything outside of himself. He is perfectly self-sufficient. He is eternal. Then, why do we not speak this name? All right. In the centuries before Christ, the pious Jews became hesitant to pronounce this name, Y-H-W-H, to avoid the possibility of misusing the divine name, they would not pronounce it at all. Now, many theologians have argued that it is proper to use the name of God because he revealed it. But the Israelites didn't. They did, they did so until a custom arose just before Christ, and the custom was not to say it. And it was not a matter of divine law, though. So you could possibly profane other versions of his name. It wasn't just Y-H-W-H. So at the same time, we are not required not to say it in some sense. So what do we do? Because the church has actually commented on this, and I'm going to tell you that in a moment. All right, so what the church did in the New Testament, let's go to our next slide. The New Testament comes from Greek. And so the Greek word is kurios, from which kyrie, a liaison. Lord have mercy, kyrie eleison. Kyrios is Greek for Lord, which means in place of Yahweh. Not in place of, meaning a different way to reference or to refer to. Now, let's go to our next slide. You're getting some good teaching here. In Latin, the YHWH became JHWH. And when combined with the vowels of the word Adone, the A, the O, and the A, it became Jehovah, which became the English for the word Jehovah. Now, here's what's interesting. That actually is a mistake. God's name is not Jehovah. It came from putting those vowels of Adonai, Adonai, A-O and A, I think I said A-O-O, it's A-O and A, into those words that represented Y-H-W-H, or in this case, J-H-W-H. Now, I don't mean to cause all kinds of confusion, but let's look at our next slide. And I'll just wrap it up here. You see those two words? Adonai on the left is Hebrew for Lord. Y-H-W-H is Yahweh for who we are talking about here. God. Now, in 2008, let's look at that slide. In the Congregation for the Doctrine of Worship, said, as an expression of the infinite greatness and majesty of God, the name was held to be unpronounceable. We're talking about Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh, as we've said. And hence was replaced during the reading of sacred scripture by means of the use of an alternate name, Adonai, which means Lord in Hebrew. 
That practice continued with Christianity, recalling that the church's tradition from the beginning, that the sacred tetragrammaton, those are the four words, let's put it back on the screen, Y-H-W-H, that's called the tetragrammaton, was never pronounced in the Christian context nor translated into any of the languages in which the Bible was translated. It should not be used in the liturgy or in music. When I was a child, one of my favorite songs was, Yahweh, I know you are near. Sorry for butchering that. But that was a beautiful song to me. The church says we are not to play that. Because the reverence of the name, and again, my understanding is I can say that name because I'm not in mass or singing praise and worship that, that we would do in a liturgy. And so the church has said not to pronounce it in those contexts. But my understanding is in teaching, I can, but I prefer not to at this point. I think you got the point. So the Congregation of Doctrine of Worship reminded bishops that Y-H-W-H or Yahweh in Catholic worship should be replaced by the Latin Dominus, Lord, or a word equivalent in the local language. It doesn't mean that that word isn't who God is. It just means out of reverence and respect for the Jews and the Jewish belief who are adamant that it not be pronounced because we had so reverent, we don't even, we're not even worthy to say it. And so that is why God's name has become Lord. And that's why we see in our scriptures. We don't see in our mass, you won't hear a priest read that name in the mass, but you'll hear him say Lord or Dominus. All right, now, sorry to spend uh, too much time on that, but I think it's very interesting. Now, let's get to the famous question. This God of the Old Testament in the New Testament, we say God is rich in mercy, but a lot of people think the God of the Old Testament is rich in wrath. No. So the Old Testament has a lot of hard sayings, many laws and writings that are not understood today. Let's look at our next slide. We have this God of the Old Testament, look at the, the left, versus this God of the New Testament. This is a misconception. The God of wrath has got to be different than this God of mercy. Look at the God on the left. He's mean, he's vengeful, he's an ogre. And, this, and then he got nicer and he sent his son. And in, in that loving picture of Jesus, we have all mercy. So it's all justice in the Old Testament, all mercy in the New Testament. And the wrath of God of wrath is different from the God of mercy. No. Okay. The Old Testament is also full of passages reflecting God's love and mercy. We just explained some of those starting in the Garden of Adam and Eve. The Song of Songs, the prophets and the Psalms all tell us God's rich in love and mercy. This misconception that Jesus or the God of the New Testament is not harsh. Well, what does Jesus in the New Testament talk about? He speaks of hell more than heaven. And he talks all the time about correction. He denounces the high priests or the Jewish priests, he warns those who lead others into sin. He rebukes those who don't love, tells them they'll be thrown into the fire in Matthew 25. He rebukes the wealthy, condemns the hypocrites, and foretells disaster of, for unbelieving towns. 
He tells the towns they must repent, saying that it will be more tolerable for Sidon on that day than it was for them. This is all part of our Lord's way of telling us to wake up. Finally, we must not forget that the separation, as I mentioned in Matthew 25, of the sheep and the goats, if we aren't taking that warning, we'll go into the eternal fire. So to think about it, in the Old Testament, remember, God takes time to reveal to us. We're slow. So in the Old Testament, he treats us kind of like children. Children have to first be taught with a slap on the hand. No, no, no. You don't touch the burner. You don't run out onto the road. No, 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 no. But as we grow up into the New Testament, we're treated like adults, taught how to love. And so this is all in God's plan. All right, now, there's another misconception. That authors thought of God's will in the Old Testament exactly the same way we think of it. No. Today we know there's a definite difference between God's permissive will and his actual will. In God's actual will, he doesn't want coronavirus. For some reason, his permissive will, he allows it. God in his active will doesn't want a murder. But for some reason, his permissive will, he allows it. If something happens that is morally evil, we understand it better today because we have free will. That person who committed the murder had free will and unfortunately used it in the wrong way. But in the early parts of the Old Testament, the writers attributed everything to God's will. If Pharaoh's heart was hard, it was because God hardened it. This is how they wrote it. And it was not the Pharaoh's free will, but it was God to blame. God hardened his heart. So we should recognize that God's plan for his creation has to be revealed slowly and progressively over time. He had to show his people the tangible consequences of doing good versus doing evil. So, amongst a world of polytheism, meaning many gods, God had to hammer it home that I alone am God. And so, it is his will to the authors of the Old Testament only. Everything has to be his will. You see the difference there? It didn't evolve to us about God, permissive will and active will till later. In the Old Testament, it's just in this world of polytheism and many gods, God's got to hammer home that he is the only God and everything has to be his will. And so everything that happened bad must have been his will. Well, was it? It's easy to think that everything that is recounted in the Old Testament is the will of God. But it may involve someone carrying out his own interpretation of God's will. The authors of the scripture had that power. Yes, there are times that God commanded the Jews to do something horrible, like wipe out other people. He has done that, and he alone has the right to do as he wills. He's God. And he alone determines when life happens, when death happens, or the suffering in between. All of this is encompassed by his infinite wisdom and power, all right, without violating free will. Now, Here's where it gets interesting, because in this context, stay with me, this is going to be the deeper part here, and then we're going to get on to more interesting stuff. The portrayal of some of God's decisions in the Old Testament 
whether he made other people suffer at the hands of the Jews or he made the Jews suffer at the hands of other people, shouldn't surprise us. What do you mean, Father? Is there a difference between how God's providence is done in the Old Testament versus the way it's done today? No. They are the same. The only difference is it is written down and interpreted for us by the early Old Testament writers. And it was interpreted as always being God's will. Yes, in God's will, his permissive will, but they didn't dictate that. He allows it. In his ordained will, he didn't want it. He didn't want death and suffering, but he allowed it. But at that time, the, the authors of the Old Testament didn't know how to distinguish the difference, like we know now. And I explain all of this in my upcoming book. Now, ultimately, we can't fathom the mystery of divine providence. God's ways are not our ways. We don't understand things. The Old Testament itself directly addresses this mystery in the book of Job. Now, in some cases, you know, our own case is similar to Job. We have affliction and we complain to God. But did we listen to Job? You know what Job did? Let's be like him. He said, I don't understand these things, which I don't know. So my answer, repent. Wow. But when we seem, I mean, this is powerful, when we seem more limited, we cannot grasp the great mysteries of this providence today because in one way, we know more about God's providence, but in another way, we're more limited because we don't understand the Bible of the times. Or we don't understand, I should say, the times of the Bible. All right, we should trust. Now, in everything God works for good with those who love him, Romans 8, 28. Okay, now, getting towards the end here now. Pope Benedict XVI in Virbum Domini wrote about something we call the dark passages of the Bible. Here, it must be remembered, he said, that biblical revelation is deeply rooted in history because some of these passages are really dark. So let's talk about this. Pope Benedict said we should explain things by the historical context, but it still causes us, a lot of people who read it today, to be appalled, right? Especially if we don't understand these dark deeds that were carried out in the Old Testament. Most people interpret these texts the wrong way. We put them in terms of how we see things today. We must interpret these texts in their historical literary context. Be careful though, that doesn't mean you dispel miracles because they can historically be proven, no. But you interpret them in the mystery or the light of the mystery of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets do step up and they challenge and they preach every kind of injustice and violence. They preach against it. They challenge it. And they becomes God's way of training the people in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So they do their job. I'm not saying the Old Testament is defective. I'm just saying it's in a different context. It's all the truth. We read the Bible as literally true, but not as literalists. If we read the Bible as literally true, you'd have to go home tonight and cut off your right hand because it makes you sin. We don't read the Bible as literalists. We don't actually cut off our hand. But it's literally true in the sense that if something is causing you to sin in your life, get rid of it. 
Literally true, meaning what the, the message the authors are trying to convey is true. All right, let's do an example of this. Let's look at our next slide. I always love this drawing of, uh, of Noah, and I found it. This is the flood. A lot of people ask, how could a good God wipe out everything from the face of the earth? This is really bad, Father. He crushed everybody. Well, hmm. Dr. Ballard found evidence of a great flood around that time, but it was regional. Noah's flood, when you read it in the Bible, reads like an eyewitness account of somebody who was there. Now they didn't have satellites then to see the effect of the whole world. All they could account, uh, talk about was the account of what they saw themselves. Now this is not going against the Bible. This is just saying, let's look at the, the context. People who lived, this is what the Bible said, who lived in an arid region were forewarned of a flood, built a boat, and survived. Well, the whole world was not an arid region, just part of it. So right now, there's a clue. Then the Bible says they gathered all animals that they knew of on the face of the earth. That's kind of a clue that they knew of may mean to indicate there might have been others. And then in the Bible says, as far as their eyes could see, the world was covered with water. Well, my eyes can only see 11 miles out on the horizon. That's the curvature of the earth. I can't see past 11 miles. So though we may take it as universal, and you're allowed to believe that, you do not have to believe or read the flood account in that way. So why would God be so wrathful that he'd wipe out the entire, every single thing? Well, we have to read the context. Why would God be so wrathful that he'd wipe the slate clean? Noah shows how. Even in the face of terrible sin, God wants to save human families this family. So if God had not intervened, man was already on the path to total destruction. And so actually it was an act of mercy. If God wouldn't have acted, all of mankind would have been destroyed. Instead, his mercy acted and saved Noah and his family. And Noah and his family were saved, the others destroyed. So let's go to the next then. One of the hardest parts now, did God approve of genocide in the Old Testament? Let's look at our slide there. One of the hardest parts of the Old Testament is this warfare, this understanding of warfare. Now, a friend of mine who I've done interviews on his show named Gary Machuda, he has a Catholic radio show, made an interesting comment. I'd like to quote, he said, one of the most controversial portions of the Old Testament is God's command to Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and others. But there's a lot more going on here, he said, in Joshua and Judges than meets the eye. These are the books of the Bible that talk about it. The people who were supposed to have been destroyed are still there. The Bible says that they were destroyed, but later on we read that they're still in the Holy Land. How? The language used in Joshua and Judges is similar to what we read about in the conquest of other ancient cultures like the Egyptians or the Hittites or the Moabites, there was an exaggeration of warfare. If you won a victory, you said you wiped out all of them. You wiped them all out. So it sounds like the Israelites were commanded to totally annihilate. 
when it simply was commanded to them to necessarily fight and win, even if the win was only temporary. Now, this is according to Gary Machuda, a good Catholic. But it raises another question. Why would God then allow the rhetoric to be used in Scripture like that, if it would be confusing? Well, first, God was speaking to the original audience in a way that they could understand. The original audience then understood things different than we did. Nobody took this to mean literalistically that every single person in, in those areas were completely slaughtered and killed. Otherwise, Joshua would not have fulfilled what it said he fulfilled. So the scripture isn't just historical. It has other meanings as well, moral. And Joshua's war rhetoric serves a moral purpose here. Listen to this. The description of Joshua in battle serves to provide a lesson that through Christ, and listen to this, Joshua, Yeshua is the same name as Joshua for Jesus, that all the sin in our lives must utterly be destroyed. So we look at the deeper message here. But it still brings up the question. Let's go to the next slide. The God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. This is it. The God, the Father in the Old Testament. Now, you've heard me say in my Divine Mercy talks that, and this is interesting, that the three great acts of mercy, and if you haven't heard my talk on the Mass or on... Um, and I'm sorry, I'm getting so excited. I'm probably shouting in your guys' ears. I apologize. I just get so excited over this because this is our faith and, and it makes so much sense if you take the time to learn it. And God bless all of you for taking this time right now to learn it. But in my other talks, and I'm sorry, I'll try to stop not getting so excited. The three great acts of mercy by the three members of the Trinity are creation, redemption, and sanctification. Remember the circle, all comes from God, all will return to God. All came from God, creation, we got broken. And the second, that was from God the Father, the first act of mercy, the first person of the Trinity, creation. Then we got broken in the garden. And in the second great act of mercy, the second person of the Trinity came down, redemption. We were redeemed. And then in the third and final and greatest act of mercy, the third person of the Trinity will return us to God the Father from which we came in sanctification. Now, here's why we have both the Old and the New Testaments. The Old Testament is about the first act of mercy, creation. We read about it in Genesis. And it's a preparation for the second act of mercy, redemption. It's preparing for Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, we have the account of that second act of mercy, redemption, and a preparation for the third act of mercy, sanctification in the mass. And we read about sanctification in the Acts of the Apostles as well as the book of Revelation, talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb, the mass. So the heart of the Old Testament gives us two ways to choose from. The way of life, which is the tree of life, the commandments, being obedient, doing the will of God, loving him, loving your neighbor, or the way of death, eating of the bad fruit, the tree that he said not to eat of, idolatry, or my will be done. So the Bible gives us this choice, and it's a love story. 
The Old Testament is God loses his unfaithful bride but never gives up on her, right? And then in the New Testament, this groom is personified, incarnated, and comes in the person of Jesus for his bride to take her to the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is heaven, but we experience it here on earth in the Mass. Amazing. And so this is what we have. So our next slide, the key to understanding the Old Testament is Jesus. Christ, the wisdom of God, the thought of God, has been brought down in Christ in the New Testament. I'm sorry, the Old Testament. Of course, the New. But the key to understanding the Old is Jesus, the Word of God, the face of the Father's mercy, the Lamb of God who has come to us. This is how Jesus, the Son of God himself, tells us to interpret the Old Testament. He himself explains this. Remember the road to Emmaus after Christ resurrected? He's walking with those two guys and they're like, are you the only person who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem in these days? And it's like, whoa, are you kidding? So Jesus talks to him. He says, the prophets have spoken about me. Everything written about me in the law and the prophets must be fulfilled. Christ will suffer, die, and rise. He's talking about the Old Testament. This is written about him. So the key is Jesus is present in the Old Testament. Here's a little kind of an interesting slide. All the scripture speaks of Jesus, the word of God, the virgin birth, and, and how it will be you know, given to the people, and then how he will die and resurrect. So we never see the action of one of the persons of the Trinity without seeing the others. So God doesn't act in the Old Testament with not being a Trinity. So anyway, um, that's the powerful stuff. Now, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit, and if you haven't heard my Holy Spirit talk, your whole course is coming together now. I did the talk on the Holy Spirit, again on YouTube. This is a whole pedagogy. This is a whole series of seminary training for you made simple, I hope. Um, from the feedback I'm getting, I'm, I'm hearing it's probably about right. I, I think it's not too simple for most people. And I don't think it's too deep for most people. I think it's about right. So I took and synthesized everything I learned in seminary, which was way over my head at some times, but tried to bring it to a understandable way. But anyway, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit prepares the way for the Messiah. Now, neither the Holy Spirit nor the Messiah is fully revealed, but both are promised and watched for. Hmm. When the Holy Spirit comes, excuse me, prepares the way for the Lord, the church then is the avenue. The church reads the Old Testament like we do at Mass. She reaches for what the Spirit has said through the prophets and what it's going to say about Jesus Christ. That's why the first readings always sometimes match the second readings. Like in the first reading where it says Moses carved the bronze serpent in the desert and raised it on a pole so the people would look on it and be healed. Then the gospel reading is Christ saying, I'll be raised up on the cross. And I'll be the healing for, for the people. All right, so rhyming up here. Theophanies is a big word for when God manifests himself, when he lights the way for us. So God's word allowed himself to be seen and heard 
through the cloud of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, even though you don't think Jesus is there. Interesting, right? What about Isaiah? Really, this kind of foreshadows Jesus, doesn't it? From Isaiah, quote, the Lord has anointed me. And what does anoint a Messiah mean? Anointed one. The Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was the Jubilee year of mercy. So we have so much here. We have the New Testament, but then people say, well, why read the old? We already have everything in the new, Father, the fulfillment in Jesus. Why should we read the old? All right, we need the old and the new together. They form the inspired word of God in its wholeness, its totality. And, then, and, and, and it shows God's plan. Remember, the, the New Testament is hidden in the old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the new. Wow. What about St. Jerome? Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. We need old and new. Scripture is a deep font for the church in her worship and her prayer life. Even Vatican II, since then, the church has called for an expanded use of Scripture. And the Catechism says the Old Testament has never been revoked and it prepares for the coming of Christ. It's the true word of God. Last half a page. God bless you all. You're hanging in with me. All right. The Bible isn't just a book. It's a library. The Bible is 73 books written over many centuries with a story of God's relationship with his people, calling them to himself. It was never meant to be read as a science book or a political manifesto. In the Bible, God teaches the truths that we need for the sake of our salvation. So you could say the sum is greater than the parts. Read the Bible, though, in a whole context. What happens before or something, what happens after. But don't just isolate scripture verses. This is what our non-Catholic brethren, God bless them, they shoot me letters all the time and they'll point one little isolated verse. You gotta read the whole thing in its full context. That's why we need the Old and the New Testaments. All right, last couple slides. Let's look at this one. Mercies. You are the father of mercy. So how to receive the father's mercy? The main way is through the mystical body of Christ, the church and her sacraments. The Old Testament paved the way to this. The best way is the mass because it involves the Trinity. Mass is worship directed to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the concluding doxology where the priest raises the chalice and the patent through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. That's called the concluding doxology. Now, what's interesting is we renew, Father Mike Gately says, at this point in Mass, you can renew your most fundamental of all consecrations. Now, we have many consecrations. They're all good. We have consecrations to Mary, 33 days, the consecration of St. Joseph. These are beautiful. But Father Mike points out that all such other consecrations originate and lead back to the consecration of the Father. And he says, at that concluding doxology, every Mass, 
it's the most important consecration because that consecration begins with our baptism and we confirm it, renew it, and deepen it at every mass. Wow. All right, I got just a few minutes. I promise you we'll talk about the Our Father. Let's go to our last couple slides. The Our Father prayer. Now, the Our Father is not just a child's prayer. It's called the disciple's prayer. It must, you must be a disciple to understand it. In fact, at the most critical time, Jesus prayed this prayer. It's, it's a summary of the whole gospel. In fact, Augustine said, go through all the prayers of scripture and you will see all is contained in the Our Father. Wow. You know, when we pray this, um, we can see that we're in communion with Jesus. And here's what's interesting. The first three petitions, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, those first three petitions have to do with God and giving him glory. All right, now, it is only when we give God his proper glory that all other things will be in proper place. So the prayer must never be an attempt to bend God's will to ours, but our will to God's. Now, the second three petitions, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those second three petitions have to do with us. Why? It deals with the three essential needs of mankind in the three essential time factors, past, present, and future. What do I mean by that? First of all, it asks for bread. We ask for bread so that it's necessary for us to live in our body and soul, so it brings the present to the throne of God. Second, it asks for the forgiveness and therefore brings the past to the throne of God. Forgive us our trespasses and those who trespass against us. And then finally, it asks us to help keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. So to help us to avoid temptation commits the future to the throne of God. So we have the present and give us our bread that we can survive today. It has the past, forgive us our past sins. It has the future to lead us not into temptation. So Jesus tells us that the Father knows what we need before we need it or what before we ask, but the ask is important because then we realize our needs. This goes back to what the, the masters of suspicion didn't get. We have a need for the Father. We have to depend on him. That's why it's our Father and not my Father because our Father involves the elimination of self. The seven deadly sins crush that. And we explain that. We'll go deeper. So the fatherhood of God is the only possible basis for the brotherhood of man. If God is our father, if God is my father, and God is your father, we are brothers. Is that not awesome? Well, God bless all of you. Thank you so very much. This continuation of our training in this seminary, you're getting a seminary training and certification. You're getting uh, catechism courses. God bless all of you. We hope you'll stay with us as we continue ongoing in this Explaining the Faith series. And so sorry, again, if I was a little too loud, but it's just, this is, lo I love this so much. I can't imagine ever doing anything else. And you guys as part of our Marian family, make it all worth it. I was up all night long last night preparing this. Didn't get any sleep, but when I 
when I come here and I see you guys with me, it makes it all worth it. God bless you all and let us take God the Father into our hearts. And may Almighty God, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and God bless you. Why be a Marian helper? Because we, Marian Fathers, celebrate a Mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a Mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the shrine of divine mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you wanna learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.